0: Well, uh, so far, about today, about 115,000 people have died in our country uh, from this virus. About a half a million in the world. Meanwhile, over the last three months, there have been uh, protests and, and riots over the murder of George Floyd by an angry white police officer. I don't know, do you ever watch the news and think to yourself, we're being tested? Is life a test? I mean, it sure seems like that. It sure seemed like that when when I was a kid. Every day as a kid, every day at school I was tested. Each year in gym class, we had the president's physical fitness test. Do you remember that? And I couldn't do pull-ups. I hated that test and hated myself. But I actually enjoyed math tests uh, because they made me feel superior to the kids that picked on me in, in gym class. Life was the survival of the fittest, we we were told. Life was a test. And so I learned to compete and therefore hate my neighbor. Because winning, my winning, was dependent on their losing. My joy was dependent on my neighbor's sorrow. Well, a miracle happened this summer before my ninth grade year. They call it puberty. In the span of like five months, I went from zero pull-ups to like 15 or 20. It was awesome. It was a miracle. One day after gym class, leaving the locker room at Heritage High School, um, I remember uh, Jim Rapp was, was still getting dressed. Jim, who used to make fun of me in gym class, who was now weaker than, than me. I remember walking out the door. I turned around. I yelled into the locker room, Jim Rapp's a weenie. <laughs> but strangely, I didn't feel alive, I felt dead. Not happy, but, but sad, not like a winner, but more like, well, like a liar. Because I didn't create testosterone. I didn't decide to go through puberty, or even really work to pass the president's physical fitness test. Well, anyway, they say life is a test, and everywhere I've gone has felt like a test, everywhere except one where, one place. And that was my father's lap. There was no test to obtain my father's lap or a hug from my father or a kiss from my father. And yet, sometimes his hugs, well, his hugs would test me. They would change me. Sometimes his kisses were sweet. Sometimes his kisses would burn. But his kisses were always love. I had a good father. Well, I was just asking, I mean, doesn't it seem like we're, we're being tested? And so everyone wants to know, I, what do we need to do to, to pass the test? Should we defund the police department? Should we call in the National Guard? Should we elect a different president, or a different governor, or a different mayor, or a different chief of police? The question, uh, what do we need to do? I mean, it's everywhere right now. And what do we need to do assumes that we're each free to choose the good. So what do we need? Well, we just need knowledge of the good so we can choose the good, do the good, and pass the test, because life is a test! So, pastor, you're supposed to know these things. Give me some knowledge of the good. Give me some of that knowledge of the good and the evil. Do we defund the police department or not? Yes or no, Republican or Democrat, Fox or CNN, mask or no mask, yes or no? What's the answer? Yes or no? I don't know. There are times that I think I I, I do know, but now mostly I don't know. But I do know that Jesus never attempted to pass any legislation. And when they tried to make him king, do you remember what he did? He ran away. But that doesn't mean that he didn't do anything. It turns out that he does everything. And in Matthew chapter 6, he tells us to pray. I've been saying this prayer now for 55 years. We've been preaching on it in our last two messages uh, from Matthew. And I hope that you've noticed it's weird. And I mean really weird. He says, pray then like this talking to a group that would have included Jews and Gentiles from the Decapolis. That was a Gentile region. Probably some Romans and some Samaritans to, to boot. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven. Our Father. You see, that means that me and Jim Rapp belong on the same lap, receiving the same hugs, the same kisses, because we have the same Father. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, our manna for uh, the day, and forgive us our debts as we also forgive, or forgive our, our, as we have forgiven, or forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For If you forgive, says Jesus, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, we preached about this last time, that the unforgivable sin is, well, obviously unforgiveness. In other words, you cannot harbor unforgiveness in your heart and enjoy your Father's banquet. Remember, we talked about the Father's banquet last time. Unforgiveness is a debt. Like, all debts will be forgiven. In other words, you don't have to pay the others back. But unforgiveness is a debt that will not be forgiven. Unforgiveness must be paid with forgiveness. We talked about that last time. Well, right after praying about forgiveness, and right before Jesus tells us unforgiveness is unforgivable, he says the strangest thing. Did you catch it? Pray and lead us not into temptation. It seems that one would only pray, lead us not into t- into temptation, if sometimes God did lead us into temptation. And why would God lead us into temptation? Well the word translated temptation is the noun paras, parasmas, which is also translated test or, or trial. Parazo is the verb translated tempt, test, or trial, or, or try, and, and the devil is the paradzon, the the tempter, the tester, the trier. Well anyway, maybe that helps a little bit, because we realize life is a test and God tests us. But why would God test us? Is there anything that God does not know? My gym teacher in fourth grade tested me because he did not know, and evidently the President of the United States did not know and needed to know how many pull-ups nine-year-old Peter Hyatt could do. But God knows everything. Well, parasmas means test, and yet it does also mean temptation. Well, why, why would God test us? But even worse, why would he lead us into temptation? To be tempted is to be tested with evil, and evil is that which God does not will, that which God does not want. Would God want to lead us into a situation or a place where we would be enticed to want what he does not want? The book of James says that God does not tempt us to evil. And yet Jesus sure seems to indicate that God leads us into certain situations and places so that the tempter can tempt us with evil. Now, Christians come up with all sorts of twisted ways and strange explanations for why this doesn't mean what it so obviously seems to mean, but Jesus uh, seems, s- seems to mean it. In fact, just two chapters ago, just right before this, after he was baptized, remember this happened to Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, leads him into the wilderness, why? To be tempted by the tempter, Phew, the evil one. So he says, pray. Pray. Lead us not into temptation, implying that sometimes he does lead us into temptation. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, the devil, the accuser, and then the warning about forgiveness. So what kind of evil are we most in danger of, 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 of being tempted with? Well, maybe Jesus is thinking of unforgiveness. For after all, that is the unforgivable sin that is not forgiven and then renders all other sins unforgiven. It's the one that gives the accuser the victory, right? Because if everyone forgives, it kind of sucks for the prosecuting attorney. He's, he's out of a job, the accuser. Well, anyway, lead us not into temptation, is weird. And forgive us as we have also forgiven is weird and terrifying. Unless you forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I mean, it sounds like God's forgiveness is a result of mine. And yet my trespasses were forgiven when? 2,000 years ago on a tree in a garden, or according to the revelation, from the foundation of the world when and where the lamb was slain. Sometimes to people that had no time to go and forgive other people, Jesus just said this, your sins are forgiven you. In Colossians 2, verse 13, Paul writes that when we were dead, when we were dead, God made us alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us, having, perfect, past perfect, I think that is, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Then he writes, as the Lord has forgiven you, forgive each other. In Luke 7, speaking to a Pharisee about a prostitute wiping you know, his feet with her tears, Jesus says this to the Pharisee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. So, so to love much, it would imply that you need to know you're for, forgiven much. In First John, we read, we love because he first loved us. In the story of the prodigal son, you remember, it ends with the older brother standing in outer darkness, weeping and gnashing his teeth and muttering. Muttering what? That his father has not given him anything. Not even a kid to party with his friends. That's a goat, by the way and yet the father goes to him there and this is what he says I'm always with you and all that is mine is yours the boy is forgiven his father and all things all things with him and yet he's unforgiven for he won't forgive for he doesn't want one thing that the father has and what's that his little brother He's forgiven, yet unforgiven, for he hates forgiveness. Yet one day he will forgive, because every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess to the glory of the Father, our Father who is love, and love does not fail. Forgiveness is undeserved love. And the moment you receive that love is the moment that you give that love. And the moment you give that love is also the moment that you receive that love because love is not a decision that you make. Love is the decision that makes you with His Word, His will. His, his judgment. For, forgiveness is like an infinite river of life called love. So the moment you refuse to, to forgive, you you damn the river, and you can no longer experience forgive, forgiveness. In fact, the life dies, and the love begins to burn. It burns your ego, which is the thing that blocks the river. It burns your pride until you surrender to love and begin to Live in love, undamned. Another way to say it is that forgiveness is like a realm or a kingdom. Forgiveness isn't just your ticket to get into the kingdom. Forgiveness is the substance of the kingdom. Let me say this again, because if if you get this, I think it will really help. Forgiveness is not just your ticket to get into the kingdom. Forgiveness is the substance of the kingdom. Of the kingdom. The the kingdom is the Father's banquet where everyone loves in freedom. The kingdom is a body through which the river of life flows like blood flows through your body, because each member of your body constantly forgives the life, the life that's in the blood. The kingdom is billions of unique individuals, all united like instruments united by the rhythm of a song, the logic of a symphony, the logos of God, the word of, of God. The kingdom is reality. And your own self-centered reality is like an illusion that if not surrendered, becomes nothing but hell. And remember, Jesus has just come preaching, repent, think about this differently. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, hopefully there's a, is there a picture on the screen? If you're new, I apologize for this reference because I I don't have time to explain it to you, but you can learn about it in my book, The History of Time and the Genesis of You. But maybe you'll see and dare to believe that we exist on this timeline at, at the edge of the seventh day. Forgiveness is the kingdom, and the kingdom is the seventh day. When everything is good and it is finished, For everyone knows that God is love. And everyone knows that God is the creator of everything, which means everyone and everything is grace, which means all is forgiven except for unforgiveness, which is a denial of reality. Reality is all that's good. Reality is all of which God says Let it be. Epheme in Greek is translated forgiveness or, or let. The new and eternal creation is the manifestation of undeserved love. Your Father and all He has is forgiven you, which means unforgiveness is an illusion of your ego, which is experienced as hell in space and time. Now there's another picture on the screen. If you're new, I also apologize for this reference because I don't have time to explain it. But you can learn more about this in the book God and His Body. The proceeds go to the church. And before I die, I think I'm supposed to write a book called The Tree in the Middle of the Garden. But listen close. The boundary between the sixth day of creation and God's promised rest, the endless seventh day, The boundary between the place where men weep and gnash their teeth in outer darkness and the place where everyone sings in ecstatic praise, constantly the Father's banquet, the boundary between this age and the next age, between time and eternity, is the tree in the middle of the garden. Because we've made an idol out of space and time for the last 300 years, We've been foolishly looking for the Garden of Eden in places like Mesopotamia and Palestine. It may have once been manifest in space and time on the Temple Mount, but you won't find it there now. You'll find it in your heart and in the hearts of those around you. You are the temple that contains the Garden, and in the Garden A tree which is also a throne and on the throne is the judgment of God how you relate to the judgment of God is the difference between existing in this age or living in the age to come between existing in hell or Hades and living in heaven Uh, between a prison of fear resentment covenants and shame or a dance of gratitude and grace that is forgiveness this is a picture of the tree in the garden. This is also a, a picture of the same tree in the garden on the Temple Mount. And this is also a picture or an artist's representation of, of the tree in, in the New Jerusalem. You see, this is a picture of the good that also reveals the evil. It's the knowledge of good and evil. And this is a picture of the forgiveness that is the life of God. Jesus is the life of God. It's the tree of life. This is a picture of the judgment of of God. Now, Now, I highly doubt that you just followed all of that. But I suspect that you can follow this, a true story. And after I tell the story, we'll get back to our question, is life a test, and why would God the Father lead us into temptation? Okay? As most of you know, I've been preaching on the seventh day and the one body of Christ and the tree in the middle of the garden for the last 15 years or so. And, and I was certainly... Uh, preaching on it eight years ago as we were preaching through the book of Ephesians one Sunday morning in in the building we were meeting in before this one. Toward the end of the message, I read Ephesians 2.16, that he, that Christ, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. My friend uh, Michael, who's now moved to Hawaii, he, he he said, at that point, Peter, I heard God say, read it again. So he picked up one of the pew Bibles and he read it again. They he heard God say it again, read it again, read it again. And, and, and as he did, according to Michael, the words came to life. In other words, they were no longer dead law, but they were, they were living life, the life. Michael was transported to heaven and found himself standing in front of Jesus Christ and him crucified. He was right there in front of me, writes Michael in a letter to me that I'll include in the end notes of this sermon, so you can go back and read all of it, because it's really cool. He was right there in front of me, writes Michael. His body broken, bloodied, and bruised. It was beautiful. A voice cried out, go ahead. You know what to do. Go get them. Go on now. They're waiting. At that moment, a certainty came over me that I've never felt before. I knew exactly what to do. An indescribable elation overwhelmed me and filled me with a confidence I'd never known. It was the joy of anticipation. I walked around the left side of the crucifix, and as I, as, I, as I walked past Jesus, the backside of the crucifix was dark. There was no light, only sadness, misery, loneliness, and hatred. Though I saw it, I felt none of it. All I felt was strength and the joy of love. Then I reached out my hand and I said, come, take my hand, it's going to be okay. Standing before me was my enemy, shaking, scared, and hesitant. "'It's okay,' I said. "'Come on, take my hand. We'll go there together. They're waiting for you. It's so beautiful. You will love it.' My enemy reached out his hand. I grabbed it, turned away from him, and I walked forward, holding on tight, not looking back, just walking straight, strong, and two true. I I felt my enemy's reluctance. I knew he wasn't sure, but I said nothing. I just kept walking. It was a short distance, but it seemed to take a while. Then, as with a leap, we jumped through the body of Christ, right through his body, blood and all. I pulled my enemy through Christ himself. It was a wicked feeling, a beautiful, wicked feeling. I felt all the pain and suffering, not his pain and suffering, but mine and my friend's. Oh, I mean my enemies. (laughs) His enemy was now his friend. What Michael is describing is forgiveness. And he goes on to describe how he forgave his enemies that morning in church and was filled with unspeakable joy and became a better man. And you see, it wasn't me that did it. And it wasn't Michael that did it. It was the Word of God, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It was the judgment of God. It was mercy. It was undeserved love. It was forgiveness. Where sin had increased, and believe me, Michael had been sinned against. I, I knew his story, and it hurt. And I'm sure Michael would tell you that he had done some sinning. Where sin had increased, he saw, felt, and even became grace, abounding all the more. So back to our question. Are we being tested? And would God lead us into temptation? Are we being tested? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. So are we being tested because God doesn't know something? like who deserves heaven and who deserves hell, or who is good and who is evil. Are we in tested because God doesn't know something? No! No, 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 no. God will sometimes talk that way, but he makes it abundantly clear in Scripture that he knows exactly what we will do from before the foundation of the world. The moment that he made you, he already knew every sin that you would commit your entire life, and if he had wanted to, if he had chosen to, he could just not make you but he did, and all he makes is good, and so evil in you is not what he made, and not who you truly are, and evil is a lie about who you are. So anyway, we are not being tested because God does not know something, We are being tested because we don't know God, who is our helper. We don't know the good. And so we do not surrender to the life. We are not being tested so God can see if we will do something. We are being tested so we can see that God does do something. He actually does everything. He does everything good in us and in everyone else. In other words, He is our righteousness. We're being tested. But, but does God lead us into temptation? Well, yeah. You ever heard of Adam? Anybody ever heard of Adam? (laughs) Dang. You know we blame him. We blame him, don't we? We blame him. You know why? Because we're idiots and we don't read the story. Is it not obvious that Adam, which means humanity, cannot find his helper? even though his helper is God, who is with him, even as he looks for his helper. This is clearly not good. God says this is not good. Before the fall, he says it's not good. This is clearly not good, but Adam doesn't know it's not good, for he doesn't have the knowledge of the good and the evil. He does not know his helper or the word of his helper, He doesn't know that the word of his helper is good. He's just like every little baby that does not yet know his or her father. So God makes Ha-Adam, the Adam, humanity, male and female, and he plants the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees that look like one tree in one spot or one tree that functions like two trees depending on your perspective. And, 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 and actually, God had already planted the tree because <laughs> he knew what would happen. God says, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will not eat for the day you eat of it, you will die. Then he makes ha, adam, male and female. And then it appears that he just leaves. He leaves them alone with Satan, the devil, the accuser, the tempter, and this tree. So yeah, God may not tempt us with evil like James says he doesn't tempt us with evil, evil is nothingness, and he can't do that, he doesn't tempt us with evil, but dang, if this is not leading someone into temptation, uh, i don 't know what is. So yes, he leads Adam, humanity into temptation, and yes, we all fail, and God knows that we 'd fail. In other words, God 's just not stupid, he 's not stupid. so uh, have you ever heard of Adam? That would be an example. You ever heard of Abraham? Or Israel? Or Adam as in the last Adam? This is Genesis 22 1. God tested, also translated, tempted, Abraham. And you remember that it was a pretty brutal temptation. And check this out. Abraham passed the test. But as we read on, we realize that it wasn't really Abraham that passed the test, but something in Abraham that was not of Abraham called faith. God tested Abraham, and over and over again, Scripture tells us how God tested Israel, the children of Abraham, and they all failed, except maybe Joshua which is just Hebrew for the name Jesus. And then Caleb, which means something like dog. So Jesus and his dog. It's an interesting little thing. But anyway, God tested them for 40 years in the wilderness. And we just read in Matthew 4, 1, how Jesus, who is the last Adam, was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days in order to be tempted by the tempter. And now check this out. In response to the temptation, Jesus says, You shall not tempt, ek You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So, Jesus passes the test by not putting his Father to the test. And this is really fascinating. But whenever God leads people into temptation, the temptation is to tempt him, to put him, the Father, to the test. Hebrews 3, we we read that the day of testing in the wilderness was when the Israelites, quote, put God to the test. So they failed the test by putting God to the test, as he tempted them to do. They they failed the test, but God passed the test by providing bread from heaven. And Jesus tells us, hey, uh, I am that bread. And God passed the test by providing water from a rock. And Paul claims that Jesus is a rock, broken by Moses, the law, from which flows a river, a river of life. And God passed the test by leading them into the the land through, through Jesus, which is simply the Anglicized translation of the Aramaic form of the name Joshua. When Abraham passes the test on the Temple Mount, he passes by faith. And you remember that God provides a grown lamb to be sacrificed in Isaac's place, the same place Jesus will be sacrificed on a tree in a garden, the same place from whence comes our faith, the same place from which throws a river of life from a rock that has been broken. When God leads the first Adam, the first Adam into temptation in the garden, Eve and Adam are are tempted to do what? They're tempted to put the Word of God to the test. The tempter says, did God actually say you will not die? Hmm. Let's put that to the test. Oh, there's a tree. Now, the funny thing is that they they actually do die, right? So that wasn't really the evil, it was... It was the test but how would Eve or Adam know that the Word of God is how would they know that the Word of God is good they didn't have knowledge of of the good God alone is good said Jesus and so God's absence or perceived absence must be the, the evil Jesus is God in flesh that is Jesus is the good in flesh hanging on a tree like fruit Eve saw that the tree was good for food, Genesis 3:6. So she took and ate. You know, I think that's what you do every time you steal. You take the good. You consume it. I think that's what you do every time you covet. Take what's not yours. Consume it. I think that's what you do when you take the truth and you twist it and you turn it into a a lie. It's what you do every time you eat a meal without gratitude. You take the good and kill it. You sin. Why would God lead you into a temptation to do that? Genesis 3, 6. And Eve saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, so she took and ate. You know, I think that's what you do every time you try to justify yourself with your knowledge of good and evil, uh, dead knowledge, the law. I think that's what you do every time you're, you're proud. You want to make yourself good, but you just crucified the good, and now you know the evil. The evil is to crucify the good. The good is not a law. The good is the heart of your Father given to you on a tree. You see, I I think we're all still coming to know, we're in the process of knowing, coming to know, or, or being known would be a better way to put it, by the good. We're all still being made in the image of God on the sixth day of creation. So every time we sin, we participate in the crucifixion of the Christ. What was it that held him to that tree? He died for your sins. We take his life on the tree. But every moment that we believe he forgave his life on the tree, we witness him rising from the dead in the garden temple of our soul, rising as faith by grace, we're justified. That means made right. We're made right by faith. Romans 5:20. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The, the good is grace and grace is undeserved love. God is love. The good is God and forgiveness is his life flowing through us, but you must, you must die with him and rise with him to know it. And you can only know it because he has chosen to know you and so led you into temptation that sin might increase, but grace abound all the more. It's grace that creates faith, and faith is Christ rising within you, his body. He consigned all to disobedience. Romans 11:32. That means he led all into temptation. He consigned all to disobedience in order that he might have mercy on all. That's forgiveness. Forgiveness is the judgment of God. Forgiveness is the judgment of God that destroys the old man, the ego, and reveals the last man, the last Adam, Christ in you, the righteousness of God that that is faith. You are saved and created by grace through faith. Peter writes that our faith more precious than gold is tested by fire, God is love, God is fire, God is undeserved love, that's forgiveness. Forgiveness that destroys the old man and sets the new man free, created in the image and likeness of God. Christ in you who passes the test. So, why pray? Lead us not into temptation. Remember how I told you last time that Coleman crashed my truck? Do you remember that? And, and, and how I forgave him my truck, which meant that Coleman no longer owed me a truck. And remember how I told you that I was glad he crashed my truck because I wanted to show Coleman that I love him more than my truck. I was glad he crashed my truck because I know that forgiveness is the most powerful tool in a father's toolbox. It's how he wins the hearts of his children and shapes them in his own image. So I actually enjoyed forgiving Coleman my truck. But I have a new truck. And I don't want Coleman to crash my new truck but if he stopped believing that i loved him and i will always forgive him if he refused to forgive his brother john because he didn't believe that i loved and forgave them both if he forgot that i was good and began to doubt my love well you see i would need to arrange for coleman to crash another truck so that i could forgive coleman Another truck. But I'd rather that Coleman wouldn't put me and my love to the test because it hurts everyone every time that Coleman crashes a truck. Hurts. When you doubt that God is love and his word is good and so you don't trust his word and do what he says, when you doubt that God forgives your sins and justifies you, so you begin to justify yourself and compete with your neighbor. When you don't forgive because you don't believe that you've been forgiven, when you sin, you put God to the test. Whether you are aware of it or not. You put God to the test, and, and I suspect he will lead you into temptation to expose the fact that you have already failed, and his love will always succeed. But how much better if you wouldn't make him prove it to you once again? How much better if you looked at Jesus? Let him show you his wounds and believed our father is good and his love for us will never fail. You see, if you refuse to forgive, you do trap yourself in outer darkness, in Hades, in hell. But you also trap him. Because unforgiveness is unforgivable. Which means he will descend into your hell and prove himself to you for he cannot enjoy the banquet if you, his son or daughter, don't enjoy him. So to pray, lead us not into temptation, is to pray, Father, I no longer need to put you to the test for I believe that you have passed the test and I am thoroughly loved, absolutely forgiven and thoroughly loved. There are two ways in which you can walk. One is believing that you can pass the test and so save yourself. Two is believing that God has passed the test and so saved you. One is believing that you can pass the test and so save yourself, which leads you to condemning everyone around you, and two, believing that God has passed the test and so saved you and so saves your neighbor. Let us conclude the matter with a parable, writes John A.T. Robinson. To man there remains two ways, and the one that is crowded is still the one that leads to destruction, and many there be that find it. But at some point on that road, be it far or near, each one finds also something, or rather someone else. It is a figure, stooping beneath the weight of a cross. Lord, where are you going? asks every man. And the answer comes, I'm going to Rome, to Moscow, to New York, to be crucified afresh in your place. And no man in the end can bear that encounter forever." For it is an encounter with a power than which there can be nothing greater, a meeting with omnipotent love itself. Its will to lordship is inexhaustible and ultimately unendurable. The sinner must yield. God has exposed the strong right arm by which he has declared that he will curb the nations. And lo, it is pierced by nails, stained with blood, and riveted in impotence. Yet this is the authentic quality of love's omnipotence. The weakness of God, 1 Corinthians 1, is stronger than man, than any man. For I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all unto myself, all men, all women, unto myself, John 12. Christ, in origin's old words, remains on the cross so long as one sinner remains in hell. That is not a speculation. It is a statement grounded in the very necessity of God's nature. In a universe of love, there can be no heaven which tolerates a chamber of horrors, no hell for any which does not at the same time make it hell for God. He cannot endure that, for that would be the final mockery of his nature, and he will not. In other words, it's unforgivable. In other words, you must believe that you are forgiven. In other words, the unforgivable sin is to not be saved. And so, he led us all into temptation. Isn't it amazing that he said to Adam, you shall not eat of the tree. And then he appears to arrange everything so that Adam would. And isn't it amazing that he said for what, thousands of years, you shall not murder. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not nail the heart of your father to a tree in a garden And then he arranges absolutely everything, and I mean everything, planets, stars, nations, space and time themselves, so that we would, so that our illusions would fail and we would watch him succeed, so that our pride would fail and we'd watch love conquer, so that we would see his heart and never doubt his intentions again. And so, Jesus, from the bosom of the Father, took bread and broke it. He he took, took bread. That's fruit. Saying, this is my body given to you. And in the same way, he took the cup, the fruit of the vine, and he said, this is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And he also said this at the table. And remember the guys that are sitting with him. He said, drink of it, all of you. So, are we being tested? Absolutely. God has led us all into temptation and is exposing the fact that we all have failed. So so what do we do? Well, apart from Him, we can do nothing. In other words, I don't don't think you were born into this world because God needs you to do something. You were born into this world because God wants you to see something. And when you truly see that something you will do everything. The thing you need to do is see Jesus. Did you know that he's in George Floyd? Did you know that he's also in Derek Chauvin, suffering? Did you know that God is our Father? And did you know that his word Is in you. Once you see Jesus, truly, you will know what to do and do it. And once we all see Jesus, the, the Father will have no more reason to lead us into temptation. <laughs> and we will just all begin to party. Peter Hyatt, Jim Rapp, George Floyd, Derek Chauvin will all begin to party and never stop. So in Jesus' name, believe the gospel, ingest the gospel, and become the gospel, amen. Father, we thank you for loving us, and I thank you for loving me and my neighbor uniquely, passionately, furiously, Relentlessly, in Jesus' name, because it's Jesus that shows us this—Your Word in flesh. Amen. And now, if if you're like me, which you are in some way, um, maybe you're thinking to yourself, "Well, gosh, God leads into temptation. How come? How come He's led me into this particular temptation? You know what I mean? Like I..." I can have a couple beers and go, yeah, I love that beer, but I'm good and be done. I have friends that have a couple beers and they can't stop. They're addicted to it. It's a different kind of temptation for them. I have other friends that uh, may have a, a gambling addiction. For me, I'm like, nah, I don't want anymore. more. I have other things, though, that I struggle with that other people don't wrestle with. So, so why is that? And maybe you also have struggled because you've been hurt by other people's temptations. Why was I subjected to my husband's temptation who drank himself to death or whatever? Why was I subjected to her temptations? Or, we have all these questions, but you see, when we realize that our God is a good father, well, it changes the whole perspective. I have four children. Each of them has hurt me in a unique and different way. And I'm not a great father. I'm not omnipotent. I'm not omniscient. But I'm grateful for each of one of them because each one of them is different. And in those places. In those unique places, I got to love my kids in a unique and different way. And now I look back and am grateful. So, you see, the particular form of your sin becomes a particular form of God's grace in you. And then we get to share that grace with each other at a banquet that never ends. (laughs) And so, all I'm saying is that, yeah, He actually really does love you. And uh, it's not an option, it's a command. Believe the gospel. Believe that good news. In Jesus' name, amen.